Yeah. So this is actually um, this is where I where I'm now. The listeners can't see, but um, I'm in my what's called a garage office, which is a garage office combo. Uh, so uh, you know, here at CFHA, we run on a very skinny budget, um, and so I, I would appreciate if you guys didn't make fun of my garage office. I heard you, I heard that. No, no, I was complimenting you. I was just telling him how fantastic it is. Should we have a question that we answer when we're saying hello this time? How about like a musician or music group that past or present that you would love to see in concert? Let's, let's say that it has to be a garage band. Oh, <laughs> that's oh, not right. Jeff, you save your good material for the show. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. This is the Integrated Care Podcast sponsored by the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We are so happy to have you on board with us. You might be on a run or in your car on a commute. We hope to make uh, whatever time you're listening to us an enjoyable time, a stimulating time, and uh, an educational time. We've got a great show for you today. We have most of our podcast uh, team here, and we've got a special guest. So we are so grateful to have each uh, of our podcasters here with us. So let's start with our intro here. I am Dr. Naftali Serrano. I'm the Executive Director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, and I'm joined by Grace. Grace, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. Grace Wilson from uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma at the Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program. We're on the Behavioral Medicine Faculty. And we also have a, a, a very special occurrence today. This was random that this happened this way. But usually, you know, we're spread across the country, literally coast to coast. I'm in North Carolina. Grace is in Oklahoma. But today, two of our podcasters happen to be in the same location. So, Deepu, Jeff, tell people who you are and then how it happens that on this podcast recording day, you guys are in the same spot. All right. Well, my name is Deepu George, and thank you for tuning in or downloading us and listening to us. Um, we are here today because we've been trying to get Jeff to come down here to speak to us. And so he did a fantastic talk yesterday on physician vitality and resilience for a lot of our faculty members, as well as local physicians. And today we have a talk focused on health inequality. And um, I'm trying to show the best of South Texas to, to Jeff. Thank you, Deepu. I'm so happy to be sitting next to you. I'm Jeff Ring, health psychologist in Los Angeles with Health Management Associates. I'm actually here because, you know, Deepu has this prestigious reputation as the best-dressed podcaster, and I didn't really believe it because I've never seen him. <laughs> so I wanted to come check it out in McAllen, Texas. And sure enough, fantastic, really uh, the latest and the greatest in style for uh, behavioral health integration. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad we're not on video every time. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, you're you're looking pretty snazzy today, I would say. So I, I like that vest look on you, Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> I like his style. So, all right. And then we also have a special guest with us, and I'm really happy to have uh, this particular individual for our talk today, uh, Dr. Will Lisenhop. And uh, Will, why don't you introduce what you do uh, at the University of New Hampshire and who you are a little bit. Um, we'll get into the main topic here in a moment, but um, if people get to know who you are, they'll get a glimpse of why we have you on the show today. Yeah. So uh, as Naftali said, uh, Will Lusenhop, I'm a clinical uh, assistant professor in the Department of Social Work at the University of New Hampshire. Um, my, I'm on the uh, research and evaluation committee with 
CFHA. Been doing that for about five years. Great organization. I'm the chair of our diversity committee here in our department. I'm part of a newly formed college level committee trying to really address how do we train our students? How do we make students of color more comfortable uh, in our uh, community at a what we call a predominantly white institution, a PWI? And, um, and then in my own town, uh, this whole tiny town of South Berwick, Maine, which is just 10 miles north of the University of New Hampshire, our town found a sister city in Tuskegee, Alabama, and we've had um, some delegations go back and forth between the two communities. And I've hosted uh, two forums um, for people to talk about uh, race and racial justice issues with each other. And so it's been a really powerful experience and again, uh, jumped at the chance when uh, Neftali told me about this. However, I will say, I just thought I was coming to a group discussion. And so this is my first ever podcast. I'm so excited. Excellent. Yeah. Well, so our audience then has a clue as to what we're going to be talking about today, which is awesome. We've got our main podcast topic today is on culture, race, ethnicity, and integrated care. And we want to sort of make the argument today for why these issues are important to team-based healthcare, why they're so germane to what our organization, our association uh, is about at its heart. Uh, before we do that, however, uh, let me, uh, make sure to mention our sponsor, big shout out to our sponsor, the University of Wisconsin, uh, health services, uh, UW health is, uh, making a big push into behavioral health. They're hiring a number of integrated healthcare professionals. So if you're interested in a career and love the Midwest, Madison is a great college town. I loved living there for many years. Uh, so check out UW Health online at careers.uwhealth.org. That's careers.uwhealth.org. And check out the opportunities there in Madison, Wisconsin. And many thanks to them for sponsoring our podcast. Uh, while you're doing that, I also want to encourage you to check out CFHA's Career Center. We've just recently done a big upgrade to that center. And there are now opportunities for you to post your resume if you're a professional, medical professional, in any of the medical professional fields, behavioral health professional, uh, if you are a dietitian, if you are a clinical pharmacist, if you are an institution looking to connect with the right kind of integrated care professionals, it's a great spot to be at because now not only do you have an option to post so that it's visible to all CFHA members and on our site, but there are also options to post across different sites across the web. Uh, so check out our Career Center. Uh, Career Center can be found at cfha.net. Um, so that's cfha.net on the Career tab. All right. Now let's transition to our news and notes segment. And today we've got a couple of really good thematically oriented news and notes items. Let's start with you, Jeffrey. Uh, you've got some interesting research related to our, our main topic today. Yeah, people are listening to this at different times, but we're recording in April, which is Minority Health Month, and a perfect opportunity to have these really important and focused conversations. Um, I, I came across this beautiful article in the Long Beach Leader, uh, April 25th, 2019. The title is Health Crisis, colon, Black Moms Die More. And it's just a, I thought, very precious summary of a terrible challenge, how the, we see more deaths and more near misses um, in African-American women, uh, more brushes with death um, during the birthing process than, than white women. And they list some of the, the potential um, reasons for that, access to prenatal care, the way in which moms manage their health, which we have to be careful about, um, you know, sort of 
you know, bl blaming individuals for something that's much larger, perhaps. Um, education uh, level, insurance status, uh, maternal age all play into this. But if you take away all of the influence of these variables, what we see is it comes back to race and ethnicity. It comes back to skin color. It comes back to the experience of being an African-American woman um, living in the United States. And they do mention also, which I think has implications for our conversation today, um, the degree to which physicians are not listening to their patients, the degree to which care is not tailored in a culturally responsive and um, culturally humble way. And then, which I thought was um, really important, is they discuss uh, something called the weathering process. The weathering process comes from research by Arlene Geronimus at University of Michigan uh, School of Public Health. Weathering process, the steady stream of um, heightened cortisol levels, which just comes from the terrible, pernicious nature of being African-American in the United States, the impact of individual and uh, institutional racism, and that these higher cortisol levels may in fact be a very important piece of this puzzle to understand the higher um, risk of uh, pregnancy and delivery. So, important issue for us in integrated health. We're at the place of uh, overlay between stress and, um, uh, and, and bodily function and safety and quality and outcomes morbidity and mortality. So that's what I wanted to share with everyone today. And I will certainly post the link um, on our uh, show notes. Excellent. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to get us started. Um, from a, just a research standpoint and a conceptual standpoint, where a lot of this research is going, there's, just, there's a lot more understanding around the role, the interface of these social variables and the very specific health-related outcomes and it's helpful to sort of make more concrete this notion of how uh, important attending to these sort of what we term social factors is actually crucial to improved healthcare clinical outcomes. So I I'm excited by this line of research, and uh, we'll we'll have some time to talk more now. At our last conference uh, in Rochester, uh, New York. Uh, in October of last year, we had a, a guest speaker, uh, Dana Matthews, uh, who's a lawyer by trade, but does a whole lot of work in the area of health inequities and its relationship to all of these uh, factors related to racial injustice, um, implicit bias, etc. And so if, if you want to uh, hear her talk, you can hear that on our website, our news website, integratedcarenews.com, and scroll down to the videos tab and, if, and scroll through there to find her talk from last October. But uh, Grace, you have an excerpt from her book today to share um, that, that gives us a little bit of sense of her thinking that can also ground our, our main conversation today. So why don't you share, share that? Yeah, so this is from her book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. Um, towards the end of the first chapter, she's talking about the history and laws and kind of the way that America um, has looked at racism over time. And she leads up to 
illustrating with some research how if you ask a typical white person now, they'll say racism is over. There's what are you talking about? But if you ask some a person of color, they'll say, no, I'm experiencing it all the time. And so she's at, she's kind of trying to make sense of how do these really disparate perspectives, how do we make sense of that? So this is on page 32. She says, the explanation for these apparently mutually exclusive viewpoints is that both are correct from their respective perspectives. The bias and prejudice that patients of color perceive is real and accurate as a matter of their experience. However, their experiences occur as a result of behavior that is motivated by beliefs and biases that medical providers have no idea that they hold. This phenomenon is called unconscious racism or implicit bias, and it is responsible for the vast majority of racial and ethnic discrimination that persists in healthcare today. Physicians and other health providers contribute to disparate treatment of disease and sickness between majority and minority patients without even knowing they are doing so and without any intention or awareness that they hold racially skewed viewpoints. Even patients contribute to disparate health outcomes without knowing they are behaving in accord with biases of which they are unaware. The contribution of unconscious racism to health disparities should not be ignored. She says, few doctors are, in fact, bigots. Nevertheless, health inequality in America is not the result of what doctors consciously think about race or minority patients. Yeah, great. So, um, again, another sort of core concept to ground our conversation today is that notion of implicit bias and the, the notion that, you know, we, we often think about bias in more overt terms. So we think, well, I'm not a biased individual because I don't you know, overtly in my, from my vantage point, discriminate. Um, and that was the, what was powerful about her talk, because it really challenged all of us to look and say, well, wait a second, um, that, that sort of presupposes this understanding that I understand the patient experience of what, what I bring to the table as a healthcare provider. And um, if I'm adequately humble about my, my understanding of what my patients perceive, that probably can't be exactly true. And that leads us into what we're going to be talking about today related to cultural humility, which uh, Will Will is our resident expert on. So uh, before we do that, however, let's take a quick break and uh, we'll be back to our main topic. We'll be right back. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one hour consultations to 1000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. All right, and we're back. So... 
we're going to pick right up with this conversation on culture, race, ethnicity, and integrated care. And I'd, li- I'd like to start with our main guest today. Um, Will, first, I, I, one of the things I'd like uh, our audience today to get out of this talk is to get a sort of a granular sense from all of us about ways in which we're working to solve this issue, right? Um, or ways that we're trying to attempt to solve this issue. And that's what it, it's exciting about the work that I hear you're doing at, New, at the University of New Hampshire and actually in your community. So could you give us a sense of uh, what some of the work is that you all are doing at the University of New Hampshire uh, to, to work on this, uh, this issue of implicit bias and cultural humility? Yeah, so uh, again, a uh, humble approach even right here. Um, uh, we are a group of people coming together trying to address problems with no major or more expertise than anyone else. It's really, I think, a matter that cultural humility approach, and I'll talk about that in a second, really is more uh, about uh, bringing your focus to the issue in a different way. So one of the things that we are uh, doing both with our students and with our faculty is shifting away from this term cultural competence, which is so kind of pervasive. I think that's a term actually It's a lovely term when you read about it, it has lovely things on it. Um, And I think it'll be around for a long time. But the difficulty with competence, and I think especially for a lot of white providers and white students we see is that word competence. So that means you could arrive somewhere. You could study enough, learn enough about any one culture, and you you could be done. And so we do hear a lot, especially some older faculty, you might hear things like, well, we've already done that training. Why do we why do we have to keep doing that? Where is this cultural humility approach really shifts your perspective? Um, and it, it, it sounds a bit generic, but you really become that lifelong learner. So for me, what I say to my students and my colleagues, I say, look, um, I I just I'm a white male from the Midwest. By the way, little shout out to the University of Wisconsin. Where I graduated in 1992. Um, and uh, that is a particular uh, effect on my upbringing, and even though I try to be a champion of these issues, um, I, I rather take the approach that I don't know what I, what's going to, I don't know the thing I'm going to say or do regarding any forms of diversity that I'm not conscious of. And so I find that an incredibly relieving approach. It allows me to engage in these issues. Um, like, for instance, you know, you say like I'm an expert, and we all have that standard neurotic thing, like no, I'm not the expert, but I'm fine to be like, hey, I, I'm not, I don't think of myself that way, but I'm, I'm, I love, love to engage in these issues, and if I learn something, if someone challenges me, I feel great. We used this recently at a um, in-university uh, talk to faculty with a, a teaching conference, and um, a colleague of mine who's an exceptional, exceptional presenter presented culture of humility. And what I saw was a room, again, a predominantly white faculty, do almost like a sigh of relief. And I'd never seen as much excitement and engagement. And it tells me, I think people are really craving to want to wage into this issue. And it shifts us away from what I think has historically been, if you're going to go talk about these issues, you're going to be classified as a racist or not, um, as opposed to a more qualitative understanding of what are the things I say, do, or believe that are going to for people to talk about uh, race and racial justice issues with each other. And so, it's, so th- in a nutshell, that's what's happening here. That's fantastic. So I, I, I'm just to shift away from Will just for a second. I, I'm, you know, so this is Will at a, uni- in a university setting trying to change organizational culture, right? 
and trying to trying to engage this issue in a longitudinal uh, developmental fashion versus, as you said, a, a competence fashion. Sort of, we do a training, we're competent, we can move on, <laughs> right? Next, next topic. I'm wondering about you guys out there in the field as well. Um, what you have seen in your institutions, um, or even in your teams, in your particular teams, related to these sorts of conversations, and what what has worked well as far as fostering this notion of cultural humility, um, and what maybe potentially hasn't worked as well. Um, do you guys have some thoughts about that from your respective uh, perspectives? Maybe, Grace, if you could lead us off. For me, I try to avoid that, you know, one big training and then we never talk about it again because I don't think that's really a helpful way of learning much of anything and especially not the kind of thing that we have to grapple over, like our implicit biases or the, the um, you know, our privilege or the other ways that that might be affecting our care. Um, so try to have gradual conversations over time. But there is, when they're on their behavioral medicine rotation with me during their second year, a time that we just sit down and do a workshop in a small group of only two or three residents and myself and talk about bias and talk about, um, you know, ways that there are disparities in healthcare and how we might be bringing that privilege. Um, and what honestly, part of what's happened for me is by starting out and just saying, what did you think when you saw that we were going to talk about this? Because a lot of times it's that kind of sigh of relief, usually not right away. Usually it's a groan, like, uh, you know, we hear about this so much and it's in the news and I'm just thinking going to be made to feel guilty. And, you know, what's the point in that? And I really try to approach it from that really, I, I love that really lovely definition of cultural humility that you gave that this is part of a conversation and we're grappling with the ways that our beliefs and biases that we may not know that we hold might be impacting patient care. The other thing I try to do is let them know that I don't expect them to have already arrived at an answer. So if they want to grapple and talk out loud and say things that they're not sure how they're going to sound until they come out, that there's space for that and to try to. Um, so usually by the end of the conversation, they say, OK, this wasn't what I expected. It opened up a little bit of the possibilities. And that's a lot of times the goal for me. Let's open up the possibilities. Let's look for experiences um, that can help challenge what my, what we may not have noticed before. Um, so that's kind of what's working. And then over time, that conversation can continue to build after we have sort of broken the ice on it in a small, safe group. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, Jeff? Yeah, I really, um, I'm, just, I'm thinking about what you were saying, Grace, and still in the context of what you read from um, Dana Matthew earlier, um, that we have such different experiences. It, it actually reminds me of that song from Big River, the, the musical about um, Huck Finn. Um, there's a song that, that's something like, um, you see the same sky that I see, but we are worlds apart. Jim, the slave, sings to Huck. We're yeah. worlds apart. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge is, how do we have these conversations? And and I think, you know, just to what you were saying, uh, Will, um, you know, th- this question of like, who's the expert? We we th- we cannot I think count on people of color to be the experts and the teachers. Right. It's incumbent upon. And I speak for myself as a white male and my you know counterparts. It is incumbent on, on us to do our own work, our own deep self-reflective work and grappling with the impacts of privilege and power, and um, oppression and our role in collusion in all of that, and to then 
take that reflective work, which I think is important to do with and among white people apart and alone behind the scenes, and then to begin to think about how that translates into action, new action, different action, different ways of encountering with tenderness, with open-heartedness, with humility, with empathy, with a voice of advocacy to empower others, to share our power, to give away our power. I think that these are really important conversations for us to have and to take responsibility for and not count on people of color to be the ones once again burdened with the educational process. You know, uh, I'll jump in here before, before uh, Deepu, you, you comment on this, but I, I just want to sort of uh, piggyback on that with a slightly different angle because I am a person of color even though my skin color doesn't show. So I've had in my life the sort of benefit of being able to appear white to individuals and to have a Latino sort of inside. Um, And I have a very mixed uh, experience upbringing being a Latino who grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Flushing, New York, uh, who went to church in a Central American uh, Pentecostal community. So I had to bridge all these worlds uh, throughout my upbringing, just as uh, that's just what life was has always been like, this sort of bridging experience, but it started very early on. And it, just a couple of things that, that I think I, I've reflected on in that process is, is um, just this idea that uh, sometimes it, it's sort of assumed that... Um, you know, if you're a person of color, you sort of get a pass for having to deal with cultural issues. Um, but the reality is like, you know, you know, Jeffrey, I totally see how um, it is important and incumbent on white Americans to do their work related to race, culture, ethnicity. But, you know, what my experience has been is it's just as important for me to do that work. The only difference is that I start off with a little bit of an advantage in that I know, by virtue of my experience, I know that my, my particular cultural experience is unique because I was forced to face that from the beginning. Um, I was forced to understand that I had a particular worldview and that it was not the dominant worldview. And that meant that there's diversity in the world and I've got to deal with that diversity and deal with it in a, in a um, more than tolerant way, but in an accepting way. Um, but even within, and I, when I do cultural work with my trainees, I point out to them uh, and I say, look, you know, within my own sub within my culture and subcultures of Latinos, there is a lot of explicit and implicit bias. Um, Growing up, we had issues where we had, you know, I I knew if you had a certain kind of hair as a Latino, uh, straight hair was better, curly hair was bad, dark hair was uh, less, dark skin was less cherished, lighter skin was was more valued. Um, The way you talk, Spanish can be very, very different. So there's all these aspects in which even within cultures, we have to do our own work in order to do that. And I'll I'll wrap this piece up by by doing this. One of the best things I heard related to white Americans and dealing with culture and race was just the encouragement for white Americans, and particularly those of us in healthcare, to recognize that we have culture. And I think that's a key piece of, of... of cultural humility is just recognizing that you have culture and in fact that there's diversity in that culture 
I mean, even if you just do enough moving around in the United States, you'll know you'll notice that, you know, an, an Italian white Italian American who grew up in New York City, a very different experience than a, a, a Dutch person in Grand Rapids um, or a person of Dutch heritage in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan. Right. I mean, there, there's there's beautiful diversity within uh, within these larger categories that we use. And understanding that, to me, is a really big component of cultural humility and is a starting point for that encounter with a patient. It's that understanding of like, hey, this is, this is where I start, where I have culture, patient has culture, and somehow we've got to make sure that we understand each other well through, through all of that. Deepu, your thoughts on how this looks like in your place? I think all three of you took all of my best points. But I'll best. <laughs> I, I think uh, to start off with the original conversation, um, one of the things that uh, Jeff brought out in his talk yesterday to our community here was his idea of focused and sustained efforts on self-reflective practices. And that's sort of a standing ground um, that we need to return to again and again to become aware of our own tunings or uh, how out of tune we are at, at some times about the things that we're dealing with. I did an implicit bias training for our physicians and residents, and uh, I made them take the test live in front of everybody, and, and everybody got their scores. And it was a very unsettling afternoon and conversation um, after that. And I think the point that I kept coming back to, of course, I am a person of color, um, and we are in an interesting geographic location because the majority population here is predominantly Hispanic, Latino, uh, and in fact, uh, white and, and uh, um, African Americans are very low uh, in this area compared to, I think, UTRGV is about 89 to 91% Hispanic. You know? So it's an interesting twist. So the implicit biases or the biases that, that is held amongst the Hispanic communities around uh, different sections are also interesting. But what I sort of uh, reflected back to our faculty and residents was uh, that somewhere arguing that the test is not valid or this is um, this is not correct, this is not me. And then one of the things that I was moved to say at that point is it isn't it interesting that your response to this is how wrong the test is rather than, wow, where am I in this conversation or the process of recognizing where I am in this process. Like, even the fact that they could argue back is a part of their bias or my bias in viewing them as saying, wow, you definitely don't want this, right? And that's a particular preference that you have um, for this. And, I, and Naftali, to your point, one of the things that I used to say in my MFT training class was I think one of the biggest disservice that we have done to the diversity conversation is to create a monolithic white majority and that we haven't really um, opened up the conversation of what does it mean to be you and, and where you are. Because if you ask most people who are white and you sort of say, tell me a little bit about your background, your family, you know, like ethnicity, they'll say, oh, I'm 20% this and 3% that. And so there is this mix of heritage and histories that we've all sort of put in as one big thing. And it's almost like diversity conversations and the privilege of having to dig deeper is a, um, you know, the, the white majority has to really know all the hues and colors and, and, and shades of every other culture and race and really understand their dynamics. But I think 
in in a, in a strange way, uh, because of having to grow up in a world like Naftali said, we did have to make a, a pretty reasonable read of our environments and, and who we have to deal with and the challenges that come with who we are. That actually gives us a very rich and nuanced perspective that somebody else of who's not of color won't get. Um, I have a thing hanging here. It's a definition of compassion by the Dalai Lama. And towards the end, he says, to be genuine, compassion must be based on respect for the other and on the realization that others have the right to be happy and overcome suffering just as much as you. And on this basis, since you can see that others are suffering, you develop a genuine sense of concern for them. You know, I think about some of the major victories that we've felt as a community and as a nation in the past few years. Um, one of the things that really stick out in my mind is when um, the Defense of Marriage Act was struck down and, and same-sex marriages became a federally sanctioned reality. And my first uh, thought, I felt uh, a deep sense of compassion for a group of people that just felt like their world ended with this ruling, you know, as much as it gave, it gave us pride, it gave me pride that we are moving in a historically, um, a, a futuristic direction that departs from history was extremely joyful. But I also know there were certain people that it just really created a lot more suffering. And um, my first thought was, how would it be for me to talk to them um, about this? Not compromising on anything that I believe in the equality of and um, the validity of any single person and their preference of who they want to be with. Um, so I think there is a bridge, I, perhaps, that people in minority positions have to really think about as well. I, I don't know if that's what you're saying, Naftali, but it, it's sort of the sense that I get. Uh, and lastly, I grew up in the United States between 94 and 98. Um, came to the U.S. without speaking a single word of English at, at seventh grade. Then I went back to India. But I had like this, uh, a, a four-year snapshot and intense experience of uh, race, ethnicity, racism, not knowing English, being the minority in every sort of the way in high school in Stafford, Texas. Then I went back. Then I went back to India and I came back after 10 or 11 years. So I had like this funny relationship with race and navigating that relationship because I went to Southwest Virginia for my uh, PhD. I started there. Uh, definitely not a diverse community <laughs> um, by what we think of as diversity. Uh, and, but I, I felt completely fine. But I, I always say that I had about 11 years to retell the story to myself so that when I landed back, I had a much different freeing atmosphere to explore my identity and be okay with whatever was coming my way. So it's a few things I think about. That's fantastic. So, Will, I know your head is kind of churning with this conversation. I'm, I'm wondering what your, what your feedback is on our conversation thus far. Yeah, well, maybe not feedback as much as just uh, joining you all or as much the experts do here. Like the idea that white people haven't felt they've had any skin in the game um, because I'll ask my students uh, or faculty, so how many of you think white being white counts as diversity? And uh, boy, there's a lot of hesitation uh, to uh, answer that question. So again, 
it's when we talk about diversity, it's always we're going to talk about people not here. It's so I don't, and I think that's part of the legacy of how we've initially talked about it. So trying to reframe, there's a great, I'll just, maybe I'll find an uh, article and send it out, but um, called Critical Whiteness Theory, which is a way of asking you to talk about what is it like to be white? You know, what is it like to live in the world being white? What is the privileges that come with that? What are the downsides that come with that? I think a lot of, when you're talking about a lot of people just identify the 10 or 20% of their backgrounds, I, I think there's envy um, also in uh, communities of color or ethnic communities that uh, some white people, I think, don't necessarily have. Um, the other piece I just wanted to throw in, too, which is we all know, even even a behavioral health professional who says, um, yeah, I don't want to go to therapy. That's going to be painful. Um, and I think I hear that around the diversity issues. But my experience is, um, and I think about what Deepu said, is I find them enlivening. I find them uh, uh, I, there's not a month that goes by I don't learn something more about myself and like Deepu with your with your residents who you know that's you're right it's that you created a nice form that brought in some tension um, but it's it's like if you're gonna run a marathon you're gonna you're gonna have to go more miles one day and it's gonna hurt and so some of that tension I'm always reframing as reframing the guilt and shame response to um, something that's really about learning and to, uh, moving beyond that. So anyway, um, I, I could go on and on, but uh, I, I won't. But I, I'm excited about the conversation and what, what people are doing. I think it's worth bookmarking um, the work of Robin D'Angelo, the book um, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Um, that difficulty in having the conversation is really important. Um, a tough nut to crack for us as educators uh, and a really important one. And historically, that fragility, this difficulty with this concept, the um, very fraught relationship with power has actually turned into um, violence. And, um, you know, it's part of the, the whole mass slavery to mass incarceration um, problem. I, I, I was just journeying down um, uh, to Montgomery, Alabama to see Brian Stevenson's, the museum that, that really uh, honors and recognizes the legacy of, of lynching uh, and, and the issue of um, fragility and its link to that is, I think, a an important conversation. I will say it, it's taken me a while to get to the point where I will make myself have these conversations because there's a big piece of me that's always been a peacemaker and not wanted to rock the boat. But I had to reframe for myself that peacemaking is not just about myself being comfortable in a conversation, but peacemaking is about kind of back to what you said earlier, Jeff, of being an ally is not depending on someone else to do the work for us. And if I can start a conversation um, that is really a small, and my discomfort is a small, small sacrifice for me to make if it betters the life of someone who's suffering. Like you mentioned, deeply, the, the fact of suffering. And just one more quote from this Dana Bowen Matthew book that I thought was really powerful is she said, I cannot shrink from confronting implicit racial bias due to a seemingly paralyzing fear that doing so is the equivalent of charging healthcare providers with outright racism and bigotry. The cure for this paralysis is an accurate understanding that implicit and unconscious biases are the fact of American life that contradicts the work against most Americans' true intentions. So I've had to uh, like 
force myself to let go or not even let go. It's still there, a fear that I'm going to upset someone or that I'm going to make someone feel that I'm calling them a racist or that I'm going to cause discomfort in someone else for the greater good of this conversation. What I think is just really, truly important work. One of the things I real quick that I do now when I'm speaking to any group on these issues and really just in general, as I say, I beg of you and I welcome you to notice and to say something about when I'm presenting, there may be a word, and it may be all, I threw in all the isms around uh, disability, gender, um, please let me know. I, I, I want to know that have that conversation that immediately takes a little bit of that worry um, right off the table that I have to do it just right so I don't get called out. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. And, and I think um, to wrap our conversation up today, I know we could um, kind of go on and on about this. I, I, I want to sort of um, encourage folks out there who are listening that, yes, there is some pain involved in working through these, as we've, we've pointed out. But it's a journey that ends in joy um, because uh, this journey of, of uh, cultural, of, of embodying cultural humility is one that ends with terrific self-knowledge and self-appreciation. Like, that's the thing that I think is, a, is the gift of my uh, upbringing as a minority, um, I really value the fact that I enjoy who I am and who I've become as a unique individual and all the nuances of that. And I wish that for everyone. Uh, I, I wish for uh, a white American in the Midwest and the Southwest, the East Coast, whatever, to have that same sense of joy about who they are, how they see themselves, and to then uh, by that also be able to approach those of color and those with other experiences with humility and curiosity and an openness to learn and to be changed and transformed through that process. That is a joyful process when you are embedded in it. And as a healthcare provider, you experience that in a very unique way because of how intimately connected you become to patients in, in these discrete moments, whether you're treating diabetes or whether you're working with someone with depression, when you enter a conversation with that approach, there is joy that is the end result of that interaction of those two worldviews and those cultures. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that's something to promote to our healthcare teams. Hey, yeah, this is hard work. And yeah, some of this is really uncomfortable. And some of this is actually painful. And some of this, you're going to find some things out about yourself that you don't like. But the end result is actually a joyfulness that enters into the space between us and our patients. And um, hopefully, in the end, better care. You know, patients who receive uh, respectful, um, culturally appropriate uh, care that meets them where they are. So, uh, again, we can go on and on. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Now, we have a special interview that uh, Jeffrey did with the authors of a book that targets an, a, a sort of an angle on this issue. So, Jeffrey, why don't you lead us in into that interview? Yeah, um, the interview is, uh, segment today is going to really deepen uh, the conversation that we're having now. Our uh, superhero extraordinary authors 
uh, editors of the book, Lisa Barkley, Maria, Veronica, Svetaz, and uh, Vinod uh, Chulani, are telling us in their book that we must find a way to have conversations about race and ethnicity in the consulting room, in how in the hallowed halls where of hospitals and clinics where healthcare is delivered. They're the editors of the book, Promoting Health Equity Among Racially and Ethnically Diverse Adolescents. And I'm very excited for you to uh, listen in on our conversation. Great. Here's the interview. It's April. It is Minority Health Month and a perfect opportunity to do some reflection on um, health inequities and health disparities globally but more specifically with adolescents. And I'm so excited and honored to have the three editors here of a brand new book entitled Promoting Health Equity Among Racially and Ethnically Diverse Adolescents, a Practical Guide, published just recently by Springer. This extraordinary book shines a really bright light on a group that has been underserved, treated, and marginalized. And it's chock full of clinical approaches as well as sort of um, theoretical and, and thinking approaches to improving care in this area. So with us today, our editors are um, Dr. Lisa Barkley, Program Director, Family Medicine Residency, and Vice Chair of the Department of Family Medicine at Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in Los Angeles. We have uh, La Doctora Maria Veronica Svetaz, Medical Director and Faculty at the Department of Family and Community Medicine and Hennepin Healthcare up in uh, Chile, Minneapolis. And we have uh, Dr. Uh, Vino Chilani. He's the chief of the section of adolescent medicine in the Department of General Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at Phoenix Children's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. First of all, I just want to congratulate all of you on this extraordinary birthing of what I um, can imagine was a really demanding uh, project. I will just say that I, I, I too, am an author of one of the chapters, just to kind of um, bring that into the mix, and honored to, to be so. so. So let me start with you, Dr. Barkley. Can you tell us a little bit about the birth of this book? Uh, how, how did this come to, to be, this idea, and, and, and why did you all feel it was so important? Well, we've all been colleagues in um, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine for over 20 years, and we've all taken care of adolescents um, from these populations. And we really felt that there was a void in information for health professionals about how to really uh, work with teens, how to promote health equity as a healthcare provider. There's a lot of information in other disciplines, but for people who are doing clinical care and one-on-one um, -on -one with an adolescent, there wasn't a lot of information about how to increase your skill set to be good at promoting health equity. We see that there was a void in the research as well as to um, how to really promote assets and strengths in, in youth versus just talking about all the risky behavior that many um, adolescents are in who are from uh, non-majority um, groups. So we really felt that this book needed to be there to be a voice for those adolescents, to provide uh, assistance to those of us who really care about taking care of this population, and um, for, for everyone to uh, learn more about how to do better in our clinical settings. Do you have an idea, Lisa? Why have these kids fallen off the radar with so, such um, frequency? Why are uh, adolescents of color so often um, disregarded or, or not receiving optimal care? 
Well, there's a lot of structural um, factors in our society that play into their uh, circumstances. And I think that in order to provide good care to them, you have to look at them holistically, look at the social factors, look at the structural ways in which our societies are built and help our youth navigate. I think there's a lot of... um, not a lot of support to help them navigate through those challenges because oftentimes we're not really uh, admitting or addressing the fact that, that uh, youth of color face particular uh, challenges and expect them to just navigate it without any um, thought. Beautiful. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but when we talk about support and navigation, of course, the opportunity to talk about um, collaborative teams and the role of behavioral health folks working shoulder to shoulder with physicians um, will be really important, uh, I know, in enhancing how care is delivered. Um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Svetas, um, can you tell us a little bit about the alignment? There's some really wonderful timing about the publication of your book and a position paper through the Society of Adolescent Health and Medicine. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yes, yes, I can. And, and for once, I think it's, it's talking about teams uh, and how we can deliver care with forming a team. It's the same when you're advancing when you're advancing science and you're advancing research, right? We were a, a group of people working on the same issues and we have been very devoted <clears throat> in the last year, changing, bringing that change uh, into the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. So the position paper was kind of like born in, in parallel and I will not say by chance, but I think like because many of us were looking for outlets to uh, put these issues on the map. But I have to say like, Depending on how we look at it, fortunately, or I think we'll say more unfortunately, this new context that we are living in and with this new um, divide and for the position paper, it was like December of 2016 and looking at reports from the Southern Poverty Law Center about increase on hate crimes and thinking, I'm, I'm the chair of the diversity committee. We, it's, the, it's the co-chair also the, now of the diversity committee. And so we were thinking, how can we react to that? And we were working on a different project and we felt like, that's it. This is the one that we need to move forward. Like someone needs to start making the connection between racism and health and why addressing matters like these are vital, vital by the way that we provide care. So I'm thinking, I think by that time, the book was already kind of like in, on the creation, but with a different flavor, right? So we were working on creating, I did a presentation at the Society for Adolescent Helps about creating inclusive programs, and uh, Lisa was working on the minority special interest group, and I think Springer met all of us and find all those people working on, on these issues, and that's how the other project kept going. And then it, in the end, this is the funny, the funny piece. Like we got, we got the proofread, <laughs> both of the position paper and, and the the book at the same week at the same time. And I'm like, what are the odds? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it will, it was driven by different forces. The book at the beginning was more um, in the middle of 2016, and it was more like with a push about this is the right moment to amplify all the good work that most of us are doing with. Uh, diverse teams and, and shared all the lessons learned. And the other was more like a, the position paper came across as, as a, I will not say reactive, but also like a wake-up call on on how we need to address urgently this matter. The, the way I think about the position paper, I think it, it was like a shield, trying to, what can we bring as a shield 
right now to the community. So people in the organization can start creating these shields to protect our teens and our co-workers from this uh, wave of hate crimes. Uh, that's an extraordinary alignment of um, forces and energies and, and, and problems in, in our time. Um, Dr. Chilani, the, the book is very sort of tangible in terms of um, skills, clinical skills of working with folks. Um, would you say a little bit about your choice in, in writing in that directed clinical way? And, and, and maybe you have some thoughts as well about the importance of, of teams and, and, um, and integrated teams in providing uh, optimal care for uh, minority adolescents. You know, and thank you, Jeff. In the creation of the book, we were very mindful about how are we able to translate concepts into practice and how do we facilitate that for our readers? And so we've truly structured this around vignettes and using case examples to demonstrate how we might, you know, tangibly take constructs and concepts into clinical care. But speaking to your question about the, the role of integration and in behavioral health, I think there are three good reasons that I can think of that really make a case for this. One, when you take a look at the impact of race and ethnicity-related maltreatment and how it presents, there's a well-documented body of literature that talks about how it presents in symptoms of emotional distress and anxiety and depression and in hopelessness. And who better, who better to address these core symptoms and manifestations of race and ethnicity-based maltreatment and racism than our behavioral health colleagues? The other reason is really we have to take a look at racism as trauma and toxic stress and respond to individuals and young people with trauma-informed approaches. And there are no greater experts at trauma-informed approaches than our behavioral health colleagues. But lastly, you also have to think of the many different levels of racism. Racism is also internalized. This is manifested by the acceptance of members of stigmatized groups about negative messages about their own abilities and intrinsic worth. Now, this is not simply self-hatred or low self-esteem, but a structure of self-defeating attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that actually support and collude with racism. Just as there is a system in place that reinforces power and white privilege, there is also a system in place that mires young people in their own oppression, that mires communities of color in their own oppression. And internalized racism, self-concept is limited, self-esteem is corrupted, self-image is negated, and self-love is defeated. And if you're to dismantle racism, you have to begin from the inside out. The mind is the presser's greatest tool. And who better to liberate the mind and to decolonize the mind and work with young people in this area than our behavioral health colleagues. Wow, so beautifully articulated, thank you. Um, I'm thinking that integrated practitioners and behavioral health folks not only are accessible and important um, in, in attending to the trauma uh, of racism, but often perhaps able to be the voice of, um, of clarity and in institutional racism, working with colleagues to think and rethink how we actually uh, deliver care. Um, in a truly collaborative, respectful way. Dr. Uh, Svetoz, um, you've been seeing some of this in action, right, uh, in your Health Homes Project. Can you just share an observation or two about how your integrated teams seem to be working with, uh, with adolescents? I think it's, it's fascinating um, to work as a team, and, and, and you just kind of like, by your comment, nail it in one of the reasons, right? Like, uh, when you are working as a team and you're using truly a partnership, you are modeling for the whole healthcare how healthcare should be delivered. Like no privileges, no positions, no, and, and everyone has a very 
important and vital function on the team. So that, for example, what, what I learned is like that, that structure per se creates waves into a healthcare system because people are amazed. And sometimes what we, the only thing that we do is we invite them to come to our pre-visit huddling or pre-visit planning with the whole team for them to see how we discuss the patient, how everyone's opinion is weighted in the same way. There's no ranking and everyone has something to bring to the table. So that, that, that role modeling, I think it's, it's, it's really, really important. But the same is translated to the teens, right? And behavioral health home, particularly here in, in so it, it, come, it stems from this concept of health homes, meaning instead of a healthcare home that are based mainly on your diseases or problem, health home is anchor on wellness. And that's kind of like, it's a strength-based, it's sort of like mimic the, the values and, and the core elements on adolescent healthcare, the core element on patient and family-centeredness that family physicians and pediatricians bring to the table, and most importantly, the health equity values, right? So it's kind of like you, you have that, that harmony and that way that, that you can integrate all those sciences or field together and bringing looking at the teens through their strength and and looking through this trauma-informed care bringing them to this safe space where they are not judged where we see kind of like the, what happened to them right instead of like what's wrong with you and it allows you to have also this ecological lens where you take into account the most important thing that happened in their life right which are all these structural, I call it the pile-up of stress, right? Or the pile-up of unequally distributed social determinant of health. And not only helping, for once, behavioral health home, it's amazing that allows you to, to do intergenerational care, which it's key when you're working with uh, diverse teams. I, I believe like it should be the, the, the care that we provide every team, right? Because adolescence happens to a family. But it allows you to work on their strengths and it allows you to reflect them all the things that they have conquered and just by being that mirror, right? And I, I, I talk a lot about reclaiming the right to dream and reclaiming the right to dream big. So you, usually we have these spaces reflecting about what's your passion and what is your wildest dream and, and calling into account every other systems like their as, as their advocates, so we're really active in writing letters to the school and kind of expanding their privilege toward the other system for them to see those teens in the way that we see them, right? Like jewels. So that's our mission. I appreciate that. I get such a warm feeling in your description of um, your, uh, how you're thinking about and delivering health homes as truly a safe place. And it sounds extraordinary, not only for the recipients of care, it's so relationship-centered, but for those who uh, those who who work in that, I mean, we we who work in collaborative settings that know about the joy and delight and how gratifying it can be to work doing good work in a collaborative team. One quick reflection: like I just finished a chapter yesterday writing about vicarious resilience, how these en empathic spaces, particularly the one that we do with teens or but any kind of empathic spaces, end up making you stronger. And that's the not so new, but new concept of vicarious resilience and how lucky we are to be able to do this work because we benefit from it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Barkley, 
so this concept of talking about race in the clinical encounter, that it's present as a, as a, a true reality of sort of life and the, and the practitioner-patient relationship, um, how are you training your residents to do this in, in your residency program? And what's the uptake? What are the um, successes and, and challenges of, of um, being so um, direct and forward in these ways? Well, I think um, for our adolescents, I mean, the, the fun and fascinating thing about taking care of them is that they're so honest and authentic about things. And so for us as healthcare providers to not name racism and other barriers that are there in our lives, you know, doesn't make us really be as authentic as we should be. And again, like um, Veronica said, that's how you can help them build and be strong and, um, and collaborate and, and be active in their own healthcare setting. So um, at Charles Drew University in our new family medicine residency, we're really trying to make the skills of promoting health equity be another part of the competencies that our family docs um, leave with. We just started this year, so we only have one class. But one of the things that we did was really spend time upfront in orientation talking about the skill sets of cultural sensitivity and humility, really looking at yourself. Because I think as providers, the, the biggest way that we can do this is being self-aware of our own biases, of our own lived experiences that we bring to the table, and then uh, being able to um, understand uh, many of the concepts about health equity around social determinants, around social justice, so that our, our residents have a foundation in that. So when they go out to see patients, they can uh, come from a different lens than residents who haven't done that. And of course, we have more plans to really uh, incorporate that as we continue to grow our residency program, but we'll be able to tell you more about outcomes in the next couple of years. But we're very excited to have a residency program where this is a core value. If I might add yes. to that, Jeff, you know, I, I think it's very important to recognize that there is internal work that healthcare providers need to do before they can show up and begin to explore racism with young people. For, for our providers of color, how will they approach this? Would they have first addressed and worked on their own internal racism and, the, and, and identified their own strengths and patterns of self-defeating behaviors? For white providers, will they come in reflective and, and mindful and view racism not only as individual acts of meanness, but in institutions that favor them privilege and with a commitment to, to, to equity and justice? How, how will our providers show up? And they have to show up having completed their own internal work. But the other piece here that's really critical is scripts. Scripts are critical in healthcare settings because it's how we take constructs to clinic. We have we have we have scripts for pain, quality, radiation, severity, timing, alleviating factors, and modifying factors. The same needs to happen for our individual providers to be able to have frank conversations with young people about their social political realities that undergird their formative years. We have to develop the language, and language is individual, language is personal. There is a process, and we need to begin to start that process and model that process for our learners. Oh, beautiful. This is essential work. Um, this is extraordinary work, and it's really difficult and challenging work. We are talking today about dismantling racism, the, the, that head of a multi-headed monster that reveals itself in the healthcare setting and in, in, in terms of health inequity and disparities. 
I am much more optimistic about our capacity as a field to do this work because of your work, because of your extraordinary work in this book and in the teaching and the other clinical activities that, that you are engaged with. You are role models and um, extraordinary teachers. Uh, I, I wish we had five more days to talk together. This conversation is precious and important that adults in healthcare are sitting together and thinking about and talking about how we dismantle um, racism, both structural and institutional as well as internalized, and how it leads to uh, improvement in um, healthcare access and, uh, and outcomes. Thank you all so much for your book, for your time together this morning, and uh, we encourage all of our um, CFHA colleagues to, to really dive in and do some deep learning and reflection through the Promoting Health Equity Among Racial and Ethnically Diverse Adolescents book. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Our thanks to Dr. Svetas, Trulani, and Barkley for their interview with uh, Jeffrey. There's so much more we could talk about this, but we are out of time for today. However, um, I, I just remember that we actually had a, a, an intro thing planned for us and that Grace had proposed, and we didn't end up doing it. So we're going to do a reverse here and do it at the end. <laughs> so, Grace, what was the uh, – it was something about a band? Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, so I – you know, we're trying to quit talking about the weather so much at the beginning of our podcast, which we didn't do today. So I was proud of us. Uh, but I thought a question for us to share would be, what is a band or musical act, uh, past or present, that you wish you could have seen in concert? I think for me, mine is the Civil Wars. I didn't know about them until after they'd broken up as a group. All right. The Civil Wars. I have not heard of that band ever. They're good. They're good. Deepu's giving me the thumbs up. All right. All right. Deepu. I don't even know what, what kind of music is that. Uh, it's a little singer songwritery Indian-ish, folksy. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. Cool. I gotta check it out. <laughs> Deepu. All right. So, the, I guess the artist that I would have really loved to see would have been Tupac Shakur. Um, I I have been uh, meditating on some of his work, and, and there's a documentary and few that I saw a few months ago. He was only 25 when. Um, he died or he was shot and the the vision and the the critical mind that he had at 25 and a lot of his earlier songs like brenda's got a baby and all of that which really taps into racial inequalities and other things he wrote it when he was like 21 22 so i i i miss him and uh i i wonder what he would say with all the stuff going on around us today well, link to that, um, I, I would just um, give a shout out to um, recently departed Nipsey Hussle, uh, a powerful voice of building bridges and speaking yeah. truth, uh, particularly in the L.A. community and, and spreading beyond. And of course, you are in the L.A. community, so you probably uh, felt that a little bit closer than, than the rest of us. Uh, Will, what about you? You got a you got a band you uh, you wish you would have seen? Yeah, although I, I'm going to say I'm musically illiterate and I have no... <laughs> going to violate the rules just a little bit here and just say an artist I will chagrin that I hadn't heard of uh, till um, this year is a woman, uh, Janelle Monet, um, who uh, just aside from just an amazing music and a variety of music, so talented, really hits on some great social justice issues uh, in her work. And um, I, I've probably listened to it a hundred times. So um, I am... Uh, I'm going to 
I'm going to go see her at some point. I got to figure out how. Cool. Well, you guys are you guys put my musical thing to shame, so don't worry about it. you. Will I'm like if I'm a little bit embarrassed. Like if I were to share my playlist, it'd be like full of like you know the poppiest pop you could think of. <laughs> I'm like Katy Perry and all that kind of thing. However, uh, I do have sort of an eclectic set of tastes, and the one that is the most embarrassing to my wife's is that I love 70s rock. Um, and particularly like a band like Chicago. And I actually went to see the latest iteration of Chicago. Most of the band members are not there, the originals, um, <laughs> last year. And it was an awesome experience. But I would love to see them in their heyday. Uh, and so Chicago is a, is a band. And the reason it's embarrassing to my wife is because when we were dating and we'd go shopping at a Jewel Osco in Chicago, uh, where we were at the time. And inevitably, uh, a Chicago song would come up on the speakers overhead. I would break out into my falsetto and sing as we, uh, as we did <laughs> shopping, uh, which was utterly embarrassing to her, both that I was singing music from Chicago and that I was singing, period. <laughs> you could you give us an example here? No, no, no. Nice try, Will. Nice try. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All I'll say, Will, is that you know our love was meant to be. <laughs> because right. you asked that, we all get yelled at after the podcast. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, thank you so much to our listeners out there for joining us today. We hope that this has been uh, helpful, educational, and an important part of really encouraging your your work where you are. Um, to take us out, we, we have a meditation that we do to center us on our day. Um, so, Deepu, why don't you uh, take us out? Thank you. I think with all the conversations that we had today, I switched up what we were going to reflect on uh, to send us out. It's a poem by Marion Williamson and I'm going to let Jeff read the first part and I will read the last part it is called Our Deepest Fear basically when Grace talked about the discomfort that we have in bringing these things up I thought this was uh, probably the right thing for us to go out of Our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure it is our light not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And so as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. And we are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Will, for joining us today. Hopefully, we'll get an opportunity to do this again. For those of you out there, thanks for listening to the Integrated Care Podcast. We'll catch you next month.